Uh, we're going to look uh, at the second part of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, and Josh has actually covered some of the material, which I wasn't going to cover, which is brilliant, so it fits the two things together. Um, and I'm not going to go into too much sort of background detail, but the kingdom of God really is God's rule, God's reign, where God is in charge, if you like. And in one sense, we could say, well, everything is God's kingdom because God rules everywhere. But there is a specific um, sense in which Christ came to usher in his kingdom in a specific sense. And it's a kingdom where God's rule is welcomed and done. And Christ ushered it in when he came. Um, He's been building it ever since. It's growing and it's going to be fully established when he comes again to set up his kingdom in the end's times. A kingdom where there will be a new, a new heaven and new earth. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're praying a whole series of different things. We're praying for God's kingdom now, for God's kingdom in the future, for God's kingdom when it's finally consummated. We're praying for missionary work. We're praying for all sorts of things. Um, but what I want to do this morning is look particularly at this prayer in its setting in the Sermon on the Mount. Because it seems clear that it's set there quite deliberately. And this phrase that we're looking at is actually central to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's manifesto of the new kingdom. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, what we're actually praying is that the Sermon on the Mount will become real in my life. That's why, you know, people say, well, we'll say the Lord's Prayer because it's quite simple and everybody can join in, which is fine up to a point. But there's a tremendous amount in this prayer and it's easy just to say the prayer and not pray the prayer. And it's a dangerous thing to do because we're making promises to God and we're not really thinking about what we're doing. So when we're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what we're praying is, Lord, I want your kingdom to be established in my heart and in my life in the way that Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a whole different ballgame because there's a lot of stuff in this sermon and I'm just going to sort of go through it at a fairly speedy rate of knots, but there's a whole lot of stuff in this sermon that makes it clear that what Christ is calling us to is something that is radically different to what is going on in the world today. And what Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, you could sum it up in one phrase, really. You must be different. He says, the Pharisees are like this, you're to be like that. The world is like this, you're to be like that. They say this, I say that. And all the while, Jesus is making a clear demarcation between his kingdom and the kingdom that we live in. And he's saying, you're not to be like them, you're to be like this. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what we're saying is, this is, Lord, what I want you to be doing in my life in these days. So what does that look like in practice? Well, I'm just going to look at the various sections in in the Sermon on the Mount and I've taken John Stott's headings just because this is 
a simple thing to do, really. It, it makes, makes it easier to sort of divide it. And if you've got a Bible and you want to follow, then fine. We're going to look firstly at the Beatitudes, because what Jesus is saying here is, this is the character of my people, and this is the character that you are to emulate. So when we're praying, thy kingdom come, what we're saying is, are the Beatitudes in my life? And if they're not, Lord, how can I change my life so that the Beatitudes become real and central to it? Because I want your kingdom in my life. And this is how you describe your kingdom. Last week, Michael um, was talking about um, the love of God. And he, he was talking about the, the, the story of the prodigal son. And you remember the prodigal son, he'd taken his um, possessions, his wealth, his inheritance, gone off to this far country, spent the lot, wasted it all, and ended up with absolutely nothing. And there he was feeding the pigs and eating the, stu- the stuff that the pigs were eating, and he, completely, he realized completely that he'd got to the end of himself, and he said, I must go back to my father. Now, I don't expect my father to accept me, but perhaps he'll be gracious to me, perhaps he'll take me back as one of his hired servants. Perhaps he'll let me work in his fields, at least I'll get some food there. And so he goes back to his father, and his father's waiting on the hillside looking for him. And he sees him coming from from afar off. And the father rushes to the son and welcomes the son back and says, son, son, you're back. And he makes him, he gives him back all of the, the blessings that he had before. But what the son said, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy of anything. All I'm worthy of is that you come back, that I come back as a hired servant. And he, he, he is completely repentant of his whole attitude, of what he's done, and he sees how he's hurt his father. And that's what the first two Beatitudes are all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And that's what Jesus is looking for in us, those that recognize our utter dependence upon the grace of God. As the hymn puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, saviour, or I die. Do we really believe that's our position before God? Or do we think, well, actually, there's bits about me that God quite, quite appreciates and thinks are really, really good? Or do we recognise, we're like that prodigal son, that except for the grace of God, we are completely lost and completely undone. That then leads on to the next of the um, Beatitudes, which is blessed are the meek. And according to Michael Green, it means someone who is small before God. Someone who recognizes that in the presence of Almighty God, all we can do is bow down and worship and confess is that how we feel when we come before our God? Or can we just walk into God's presence as if, uh, well, we're just going into church, we're just going into wherever? Or are we here thinking, what a fantastic privilege that I've even been allowed into the presence of Almighty God because it cost the death of his son in order for me to come in here. So the third of the Beatitudes is, 
meekness before God, recognizing who we really are in the sight of an almighty God who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And here we are in his presence. And it's all because he sent his son to die for me. It's because his blood was shed. No other reason. And then as we genuinely seek God, we come to the next beatitude, that we will hunger and thirst after righteousness. And here again, Greek says that, sorry, Green says, the Greek presupposes passion and wholeheartedness. Our one desire in life is to be righteous, is to be godly, is to be godlike. And we are just so much the opposite, all of us, are we not? And, you know, how much of a hunger have I got that God is going to change me to be like him? Because Jesus says, if we're his followers, we'll have a hunger and a passion. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Have we got that hunger? Have we got that passion? And then as we meditate further, God says, blessed are those who are merciful. And if we really responded to and understood God's mercy, God's great love, God's condescension, then we'll have that same action and reattitude to other people. And we'll become pure in the sense of having an undivided heart. So that God is now central. God is not peripheral. God is not what I do on a Sunday or what I do when I think about it. Which I have to say in my life is self and true. God, God is peripheral. God is not central. God is not everything. God is not all in all. And that leads on to peacemaking, which is very different from peacekeeping. We're very good at peacekeeping, but what we should be is peacemaking. And that deals with issues and provides godly resolutions. We don't accept ungodly compromise, which so often we do. And yet in God's kingdom, Jesus is calling for righteousness in all our dealings with one another. So often we can say peace peace when there is no peace and that was precisely what the prophets in the Old Testament were condemned for they were saying to God's people peace, peace, everything's fine everything's fine and God was saying it jolly well isn't fine and if you don't sort yourselves out I'm going to come in judgement no, 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 don't take notice of that and there is a peacemaking which is in fact a peacekeeping and it is not glorifying to God And we need to know about this reconciliation ourselves because if we're not reconciled with God, then we're not going to be reconcilers. And that will be followed by persecution. He then says, that's our character. That's what we should be like. Those that are seeking seriously after God and having our lives changed. And that then will make us salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the world, you are the, li- sorry, the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And when he's talking about salt, what they had in Jewish times was a white powder, which was very similar to salt. It included salt, but because they, they couldn't refine things so well, it contained lots of dirt and dust and all sorts of stuff. And so what he says here is this salt, it had, sorry, this powder had in it salt, but it was easily washed away. And it had to be protected and looked after. 
the, the powder had to be looked after properly or it lost its power. And he's saying similarly with us. This, this grace, this character, this work of my spirit in you is going to be the salt of the earth. It's as Jesus becomes real in us that we become salt and light. But if we don't pay attention to our lives, we lose that saltiness. And we just end up with just the dust and the rest of the rubbish, which, as he says, is just got rid of underfoot. It's just worthless. And the challenge to us is, not only are the Beatitudes real to us, are they part of us, but are they exhibited to, 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 to the world? Or have we so lost that dynamic, that, that life with Jesus, that we're still white powder, we're still demonstrating something, but it's not the gospel. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, we're also praying that God will make us those that are light and salt, so that our neighbours can see in us something of Jesus. And I guess all of us, if we're honest, will say, that is so often so not true. But thy kingdom come demands that we get on our knees and we pray to God, God change us so that we are salt and light. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. We're not to hide in here when we should be out there, but equally, there's no good going out there if we're not, as a group, as a, as a body, prepared for, for folks when they come in. Do you remember Moses' light, when he, Moses' face rather, when he'd been up to the mountain and met with God, his face shone. He actually wasn't aware of it. But everybody could see that he'd been with God. And what did they say about the, 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 the Christians in the New Testament, the early days? They noted them, that they had been with Jesus. They noted them, that they had been with Jesus. And do people notice us? Do they note us that we have been with Jesus? Then there's a whole section on righteousness. I just want to spend a little bit of time on this because this is an area that tends to get ignored, I guess, by all of us. Jesus said to the um, people there, do you think that I've come to do away with the law? Because I haven't. And you need to be clear about that. The law is as relevant for you as it was for the Old Testament. And we think, well, hang on, the law's all been done away with. And in a sense it has, but in another sense it hasn't. Because he says this, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you, the earth and heaven will not disappear until the smallest stroke of a pen will... Sorry. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. So he's making it clear that he's come to establish the law and that law is a permanent thing. It's not something that was Old Testament, it's no longer relevant to us. He then goes on to make this statement, which is quite devastating, really. Anyone, that's any of us, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaching, teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the, ta- and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees, if you remember, 
were the ones who, par excellent, obeyed the law. When, when um, Jesus came, sorry, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, we do this, that, and the other, he didn't say, no, you didn't, because he knew jolly well they did. But there was a problem. I just want to read something from, um, whoops, John Stott. He says this, in every generation of the Christian era, there have been those who would not accommodate themselves to Christ's attitude to the law. The apostle, and then he goes on to explain, to talk about some of the people who, haven't, who didn't. And then he says, the apostle Paul taught very clearly the same truth. His, Christ, his statement that Christ is the end of the law does not mean that we are now free to disobey it, for the opposite is the case. It means rather that acceptance with Christ is not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ. It means, sorry, rather that, that acceptance with God is not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ, which we know. And indeed that the law bears witness to the good news, which we know. So he says, Christ fulfilled the law. The law teaches us about the gospel. But then he says this, having stated his purpose in coming was to fulfill the law, Jesus went on to give the cause and consequences of this. And it's the cause and consequences that we need to pay attention to. The cause is the permanence of the law until it's fulfilled. And the consequence is the obedience to the law which the citizens of God's kingdom must give. So the consequence is the obedience to the law which the citizens of God's kingdom must give. So in praying thy kingdom come, we're also praying that God's law will become effective in our lives. And that isn't going to happen if we don't think about it. So we need to think about what that means. So we're not called to obedience in order to obtain salvation, because we will never obtain salvation by obedience. But we are called to obedience in gratitude because of what God did on the cross. So God says... I've saved you, I've delivered you, now I want you to follow my commandments. And if we read that, remember that Jeremiah passage, what God had said in that Jeremiah passage to the, um, to the Jews was, when Jesus comes, he's going to send the Spirit, and he is going to write my law on your mind and in your heart. And uh, Peter says that we're able to obey God because of all the very many and great promises. He, he's given us everything that pertains to godliness through the great and many promises given to us. So both God has put inside us the ability to obey his law, and he's also given us the spirit and the word to enable us to do it. So Jesus isn't contradicting Moses in this next, in this next section, but what he's saying is, People had misunderstood what Moses was actually saying and teaching. And the law is something spiritual. It's something that goes on in our mind before it's something that comes out in action. And unless the spirit is working in our lives, unless the spirit is changing our behavior and our attitude and our desires, we're always going to live the same way that we did in the past. And so those old traits that we had before we were Christians keep coming out, keep coming out. 
and we say, oh, that's just me. Well, sorry, it's not just me. It's me, certainly, but it's not just me. It's me being disobedient. And so there's a real challenge to us. And, and if, we haven't got time to go into it now, but if you, re, if you were to read the, the rest of that whole chapter, you'll find that if Jesus says, look, this is how the world looks on divorce. This is how I look on divorce. This is how the world looks on murder. This is how I look on murder. And the way I look on it is much deeper, it's much spiritual, more spiritual, it's much more specific. So that being angry with somebody, some versions say without a cause, some don't, but being angry with somebody is as bad in God's sight as murdering them. Losing my rag with someone, and I'm quite competent at doing that, losing my rag with someone is just as bad in God's sight as murder. And if we look at the spiritual character of the, of the law rather than the, the sort of letter of the law, as it were, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, look, we need to be thinking these things through and working these things through. Again, we haven't got time to go through them, but if it goes on to the next section, then we've got a whole section on the way that Christians should carry out their, 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 uh, their religious life, if you like. And he gives a whole series of teaching from chapter, on chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. And he starts off by saying this, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, then you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And that's his opening paragraph and a whole section of the way that God expects us to operate in our prayer life and in our giving and in um, fasting. And interestingly enough, he doesn't say if you do these things, he says when you do these things. So again, this the whole area of our prayer, our fasting, our giving, all comes in the context of thy kingdom come. So when we're thinking about our giving, we're, we're saying to God, how do you want me to use my resources for your kingdom? In our praying, it's how is your kingdom going to come? In our fasting, it's how can I prepare myself for your kingdom and for your will and for your benefit and for your purpose? And then he looks at a whole series of different aspects of praying. We've, we've all heard people praying and you get sort of information prayers and angry prayers and all sorts of things. And God says, look, I'm looking at the character and quality of everything you do. You're praying, you're giving, you're fasting. And if the motive isn't right, then I won't hear it. I won't accept it. In the Old Testament, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, in the context of this beatitude, then God's kingdom is somewhat different to what we sometimes think with our easygoing attitude to, 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 to church and to, and to Christian things. Anything goes, really. I've just got to say sorry and ask for forgiveness, and that's dealt with. Well, that is not how God's kingdom works, and certainly in Jesus' context of, the, of the, the Sermon on the Mount, that is not how he operates. He operates a kingdom of righteousness, and that applies in every aspect of our life whether it's civil, whether it's physical, 
whether it's spiritual, whether it's in church, whether it's out of church. We're still under, we're still under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so his kingdom is so much bigger and so much deeper and there's so much more to it than, than, than what we so often think. Then he gets onto a really... Oh, I'm just going to read this passage. We, we looked at this the other Sunday evening, but um, if I've lost it, I've lost it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Never mind. It, it, was just, it, it, it was just on this whole question of... This, this was a thing we were looking at the other Sunday evening. Um, David Watson, um, and it could, because you've been looking at discipleship, and this sort of fits in with it as well, um, he, he wrote a, this book, which is sort of the classic on discipleship, I guess, and it's worth a read for everybody. Um, but he um, had been a Christian leader for, um, for many years, and he, he'd um, been used by God to, to grow this church from about 10 to several hundred about 40 or 50 years ago, and it's still going strong. So that shows the quality of God's working in this guy. And he um, set up a, a, a team, a community of leaders and workers together, and the idea was that they would discipline, discipline themselves and disciple themselves under God and become an effective team for God's working. And things went well for a bit, but he said the deeper they got, the more they shared, the more they worked with one another, the more selfish they realized they were, the more self-centered they realized they were, the more they were always, there was so much going on in the background. And he said this, since the cross is the heart of all fellowship, it is only by way of the cross that fellowship is deepened and matured. This will involve the frequent and painful crucifixion of all forms of self, self-seeking, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and the willingness to remain weak and vulnerable in open fellowship with other Christians. And this is a guy who everybody probably thought, what a fantastic Christian leader. Everything's fine with that group. Look, you can see the way God's blessing them. And he said, yeah, but central, what we realized was there was so much smuck still there that had to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's dealing with this section on piety, with our praying and our giving and our fasting. He's saying what I'm really interested in is what's going on at the bottom, not what's going on at the surface that everybody can see. And if what's going on at the bottom and what's going on at the surface don't agree then I'm not interested. What he says is, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So this kingdom of God is not something to be played with. And we're in that kingdom, and we're part of that kingdom, but to what extent is that kingdom evident and filling our lives and our purpose? Because the next section Jesus comes on to it's this whole question of ambition. Where is my treasure? He puts it in the context of, of, of money, and that's important. But really what he's asking is, where is your treasure? What takes up most of your time, your interest, or your money? 
And then he goes on a little bit later in verse 40, verse 22, uh, we're in chapter uh, 6 still. Um, and he says this, you value your physical vision, but what about your spiritual vision? How clear is your spiritual vision? How much time do you spend looking on Jesus? Now, if anyone values their physical vision, as you lot will know, it's me. Um, because I nearly lost it. Um, but I wonder if whether I'm so careful about looking after my spiritual vision, making sure that Jesus is central to what I'm doing and what I'm looking at, or whether, in fact, that's not so important. I'm much more concerned about the physical than the spiritual. I will finish in a second. I, have, I saw the sign. Um, So what fills my mind? What fills your mind? That's what the kingdom of God is about. Because Jesus says, my kingdom should be filling your mind. My kingdom is what is of vital importance. And then in verse 31, he says this. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Is that what we seek first? Is his kingdom and his righteousness first in my life? Or is it so many other things? It can be church instead of Jesus. It can be all sorts of things. But is it his righteousness? Is it his kingdom? Is it him that has got first place in our lives? And then I'll just rush through the next lot then. There's a whole series on um, judging and uh, different things, which, again, we tend to misunderstand. But we won't go into that now. But what I will do is just come to the final part, which is absolutely vital. Because Jesus is now talking about how we prove whether we're in this kingdom. Because he's talking about lots of people who think they are, but aren't. And so he finishes his sermon by a series of pictures. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. There's a narrow road and a broad road. There's a true gospel and a false gospel. And he says, there's only one way in, there's only one way to travel, and there's only one gospel to receive. And so often, in our gospel, we talk about providing satisfaction or meeting needs or whatever. But fundamentally, what Jesus is saying is, my gospel is about righteousness. And my gospel is about a cross. Um, I... Somewhere I had a quote, old Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's what Christ is talking about here. Um, we started the, see, this, the service by looking at that passage in um, Corinthians um, about being new creatures, old past, new come. And so we need to ask ourselves, 
Am I in this kingdom? Do I recognize these characteristics of the kingdom in my life? Am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Is Jesus central? Or is he part of my life, part of what I do? An important part, a very important part, but not the important part. Because if we're praying, thy kingdom come, what we're praying is, Lord, we want your rule in my life. And it's got to be in all of my life, not just in the bits I want to give you.